Orba, and I am the host of the Career Guy podcast, where I am interviewing a variety of guests and letting them share their stories about their career paths, giving you, the listener, a lot more insight of the various careers that exist, perhaps helping you make more informed choices regarding the career path that you may want to take in your life. Today, I'm interviewing Tyler Williams, an accomplished musician-composer. Tyler has an undergraduate degree in music from the University of Idaho. He also has a master's degree in music composition from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Tyler plays the electric bass guitar and stand-up bass in a variety of genres including classical, jazz, pop, and rock. He has a long list of accomplished musicians that he has played with and still involved with. He also has performed in several Broadway-like productions such as Fiddler on the Roof, Phantom of the Opera, Avenue Q, and Monty Python's Spamalot. In this interview, he illustrates how he chose and followed his passion in music. He talks about his education endeavor, his creative process, and above all, most importantly, the daily life of a musician. With that, I would like to welcome Tyler Williams. appreciate your time today, Tyler. I really appreciate that you getting together with me this afternoon and exploring how you got into your career. Good to be here, Mickey. Well, thanks. So currently you reside in Las Vegas, is that right? Yes. And have you lived in Las Vegas your entire life? Did you grow up in Las Vegas? I actually moved here in 1999 and attended UNLV for a master's degree in music composition. Okay. So before you moved there in 1999, let's just scale back the hands of time a little bit. If you could just maybe tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? Like what city did you grow up in? So I grew up in the the Northwest up in in Washington state near Spokane, Washington, just North of there. I actually grew up in Colville, Washington, and then Kettle Falls, Washington, and then moved to Lewiston, Idaho, my junior year of high school. So moved, moved around a couple of times and, and then ended up living in Rainier, Oregon for about a year after my undergraduate degree, and then decided to look into a master's degree. And that's how I ended up here in Las Vegas 22 years ago now. So you did your undergraduate degree in music as well? Because you're a musician right now. I did, yeah. I did an undergrad um, degree at the University of Idaho from 92 to 97 and studied music composition. Actually, I was a music ed major at first, and then I decided to switch it about midway through that. And then, yes, the master's degree is also in music composition. Let's go back a little bit further, if we can, if you don't mind. Sure. What 
before you even did your undergraduate throughout high school, obviously you're musically inclined. What, what got you into music just, just to begin with? Well, it's funny. I actually called my mom last night to ask her about some of this. Just so I had, had a timeline kind of in my head. And she said she had me in this like toddler dance music appreciation kind of class when I was like two or three years old. And she said, you were bobbing your head around. You were so into it. And then I think around age six, they bought me a really cheap acoustic guitar and I would just play around with it. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it, but I just would play along to the radio. And then I think my grandmother got me a toy drum set. It was one of those Muppets drum set with the, with animal on the, on the bass drum head. And I remember that Santa brought it. So I, I remember those. I, I never had one, but I saw them advertised. I remember those. It was, it was really cool. And I just, I just, I just had this mem. I have the memory still of like Santa bringing it on his sleigh and just believing that that was the real deal. So I played, I played a little bit of guitar, a little bit of drums. And then my other grandmother gave me a keyboard that kind of showed you how to play with light up keys. And I think that was around age eight or nine. And so I learned some songs by ear and just following the, the notes. And then by age 12 or 13 in middle school, I got more into like playing guitar in like a rock band and we entered like a talent show and we won. So it was like really, really cool. It's been something when you won, that must've given you a lot of confidence that this is something that I'm good at. Would that be right? Yeah, it did. It gave me a lot of confidence and we're talking, you know, eighties when, when Van Halen and and all these, you know, great rock bands, Queensryche, and are coming out, and they're just MTV is big at the time. So I loved all of it. I loved the long hair. I loved rocking out, and loved music, but wasn't really serious about reading music until later in high school, and that's when I switched to bass. So then, later in high school, when you switched to bass, two things. Then, so what happened in high school? Later in high school, did you actually? take formal education in music through high school or did you go to a conservatory or something or so i took some music lessons in high school and i think the first learning actual chords and what key i'm in was was learning rocky like a hurricane by the scorpions and then it was like oh this is so cool you know it's in, it's like an e minor and i can move it around but i guess in i think it was my junior year or sophomore year, maybe I was playing guitar in the jazz band and learning about chords and things, but not really learning about notes and, and harmony or rhythms and how they work. I just kind of played by ear and was lucky. And when we moved to Lewiston in the middle of my junior year, I was actually playing in the jazz band on guitar and then also learning to play a little bit of baritone and tuba in the concert band. And the band teacher could tell I was really into guitar and stuff he's like well why don't you try the bass and i was like well the bass is huge and, and those strings are like twice the size of a guitar and like they're gonna hurt my fingers and he, he's like no no you're, you're a big guy i'm actually six six foot three and and i just i was kind of always intrigued by the bass but i didn't really study it and then he showed me how to actual notes and rhythms and and i just took it seriously at that time and it was a combination of loving guitar and rock and roll 
and also wanting to learn more about theory and how to really understand the, the theory of music. And they had a need for tuba in the concert van. So I started playing tuba parts on the electric bass because it's had similar ranges. That was kind of, I would be writing in the notes and playing along in concert band. And then I started playing bass in the jazz band. And, and then I just kind of went from there. I just fell in love with the bass and the frequencies and, and just started gigging actually in high school. So when you said gigging, were you playing in rock bands or mostly jazz bands? Well, it's interesting because I was trying to remember how I actually got this gig. I was 16 and it was like a Ramada Inn for some retirement party or something. And it was called Mental Ward. And we played we played uh, a few bars in, in Lewiston, Idaho and, and around there. And it was like every Friday, Saturday, I was, I was almost busy. And we would, if, it was a, if it was a true bar, I, I had to go out back during the breaks because I was underage. And I just remember just like, this is, this is crazy. And I just fell in love with it. Were you playing with people that were a lot older than yourself then? I was. I, I tended to look up to like my band teacher. I think my band teacher is the one that got me the, the gig, if you will. And so I, I kind of like looked up to the, the older guys in, in different bands and they, they were so influ- influential to me. And I was very lucky to be around that. So obviously you, you were accomplished musician i mean obviously you, you were good enough to play with somebody older I'm, I'm thinking back to my teenage years yes i had visions of being a rock star as well and playing guitar and whatnot i, I just unfortunately was never that good but i could imagine that you know being young and you're playing with somebody a lot older who are probably a lot more accomplished i mean you must have been good to keep up with them i guess so and and just being like tall and and you know having the the rock look kind of helped too maybe i looked a little bit older the long hair type of thing i could relate to that for sure (laughs) you're finishing off high school then obviously you you like playing bass you you're getting into it so at some point you're you're thinking about going to post-secondary how did you decide what school to go to and how did you decide to major in you said you said you majored in music composition is that is that what you said earlier yeah, that's a good question, Mickey. My junior, senior year, I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna do for for college. And I was kind of interested in math and and music and and still playing some guitar on the side too. I was actually th- considering a classical guitar performance degree, and then I was like, well, education is a pretty safe bet. And I, I mean, I, I was teaching some lessons in high school to a couple of kids and then even teaching lifeguarding lessons. So I had that kind of educational side hanging on, but I decided to, to major in education at the university of Idaho in music and which is a great school in, in Moscow, Idaho and learned just so many things about many genres. So learning different genres, but I had to pick an instrument my freshman year at university of Idaho. I, I was like, okay, Either, either, either guitar or bass. I got to make a choice here. And they didn't really have an electric bass program. So they said, well, why don't you learn upright bass? And that's like a whole different animal. That's like, there's no frets. It's an even, it's even bigger than the electric bass. And they wanted me to learn classical with a bow. 
So I was brand new to all of that freshman year, but they were cool with that. They were, they were like, they could tell I was serious and wanted to learn. So I was learning upright bass, playing electric bass on the weekends in rock bands, and then also taking choir and, and some vocal lessons and working on the education degree. So I'm learning about other instruments as well. Well, there's a few things that are popping into my head when, as you're talking. First of all, I want to just regress back a couple of minutes when you said you were good at math. You did a lot of math. Is math something that we were just intuitive at? Was it good? Were you just good at math as well? It's a good question. I I think I just liked math and got into and I actually did really well in Kettle Falls, but then when I moved my junior year, I kind of I was in I was in advanced math classes and then I kind of went downhill and just kind of got more into music. But there is of course that relationship between math and and music with the theory and the way notes are divided and rhythms and things like that. So that's the reason why I was asking you. I was just wondering if you, could, if you want to elaborate on that a little bit more, if, you, if you'd like. It's, it's funny. It's not like I'm running around with a calculator all day going, oh, wow, look at this equation. But once I started learning about like time signatures and music and how they divide up and, and subdivisions, it's like, oh, this is, this is cool. I like this. Whereas a lot of rock musicians or improvising type musicians, they don't want to really learn that stuff. They just kind of want to play and be in the moment. So I kind of had some of the best of both where I was interested in learning how it works out and just wanting to be free and creative. Even to, even this morning, I was kind of playing around with a, a, a tune. My friend Mark sent me, he's a great drummer in Las Vegas here. And, he's, and he just sends me this minute clip with no, and nothing about it. I'm like, Oh, you want to play along with that. And so I just like, I put it into my, my um my logic pro this morning just actually just before you called me and, and just started playing around didn't i was going to make a form i was going to make a chart and analyze the time signatures and all that stuff like i was talking about but instead i just played along and it was just it was fun and and that's kind of like what podcasting has done for me is it's just do it your own way have fun with it and anyway i'm kind of going all over the map but maybe later on in the we'll get more into the creativity part because i do have other questions about that but if we could just go back to talking a little bit more about your post-secondary so sure that's that's a four-year program is that right yes so what kind of give us give give me and give the listeners a little bit more information on what what's that what's that like when you go into music composition you're obviously taking music, but you're also understanding the educational part of it, though, too. So what kind of classes are you taking? So as a freshman, start with a lot of one-on-one classes, which for me was very basic theory. And I, I did terrible my first first semester, the first couple of months. I was getting bad grades and, and just not getting it, almost to the point where I was turning things around and, and putting the opposite answer, like... If it's if it said slur or I would I would play it as I would think of it as a staccato or I just had something where I was flipping definitions around and then and it kind of made me upset. I was like, I, I gotta I love music. And so I had this awakening and my theory teacher was great. He's like, he's like, here, just here's what it is. And and I flipped around the switch. <laughs> First two years of college were were like almost a deconstruction of perceptions of music. Because some of the kids are, they were great. They already had a lot of classical training and they understood the theory and the mechanics of music. Whereas I kind of came in as a rocker, 
and not really understanding it, but still loving the math side of it. And so it was like a slow growth in a good way. I could relate to that because I was a rocker as well. I, you mentioned the Scorpions, Van Halen, Metallica. I was all into that stuff. And a lot of my friends back then were really into rocking out. And, you know, going back to me wanting to be a rock star, sure, I knew a lot of other musicians. So I think, I think that the perception of a lot of rock musicians are not musically competent. And the way you've just described that, that you're going into university and you are a rocker, but you, you've sort of, people that already had the classical music training were, it, at least the way, I, the way I'm understanding from you, that they were a bit ahead of you. Is that, is that a good assumption? Yeah, definitely. I remember this guy, his name was Luke, I think, and he was a wonderful violinist. And I remember having lunch and he was writing music with a pen and paper and no keyboard or no reference with his violin. He was doing it all in his head like Mozart would do or something. And I was like, this is amazing. Like, <laughs> I want to learn this. And he's like, well, I, you know, he, he took oral skills when he was eight and all these things and, and just understood it deeply and mentally. But getting back to the rock thing, you know, in the, in the mid nineties, of course, that's when gr the grunge scene was really getting popular, like Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and all that in Seattle. And I'd be taking some classes and then I'd be like, okay, I want to go to Seattle and join a rock band or something at the same time. But it worked out. It worked out. Yeah. So just going back to that, I mean, just pick up one more little part of this. So being a rock musician and you go into the, an area where you've got a lot of people with formal training, did you feel intimidated? I did. Yeah. I, I felt intimidated, especially like an orchestra with my upright bass, because that was so new to me and just playing in tune and, and having technique. But I worked really hard and, and got better. And I think eventually I even became the principal bassist my last year of college, which was pretty cool. The principal or assistant principal for the college orchestra. So that was, it's kind of weird like to think of that in like five years, I went from not playing upright bass to getting pretty good, I guess. Well, I think you're being modest. You, you must have been good. I mean, obviously you went on and pursued this as a profession. So, so you must have grown a lot in university. I did. And it was a fast thing. And I, I, like I told you earlier, I was, I was an ed major at first, but then I did an international student exchange program in Sweden, my third year. And I took a composition class at the, at the school up in Luleå, the university in, in North Sweden. And I just remember having a couple of great teachers there and, and just saying, oh, we see you like to compose. Why don't you, you know, take it a little more serious? And I, so I remember taking like this 16th century Palestrina course and analyzing his wonderful scores and just going, man, this is incredible. Just like how these things are structured, the form, the way they write the notes. And I got really heavy into analyzing scores and things. And I switched my major. I came back to u of i to finish up and got a composition degree and and then just kind of took some odd jobs and eventually went for more school let's just go back you you really caught my attention on the on your international internship there so how'd you how'd you land that how'd you get into that it's funny i was kind of thinking about it as i was saying it like it's called icep i-s-e-p which is the international student exchange program and my my ex-wife and I, we both were 
musicians and wanting to just travel and do something different. And so they had this really cool program. It's a program where you pay the same basic tuition and, and, and room and board that you would pay in, in your home college. So I, Idaho was super affordable. It was great. You know, I was, I think, I think my rent was like $300 a month or something. And, and just, it was, so it was like, I was paying that and I had this really cool flat in downtown PTO Sweden. And it was like, whoa. And I think, I think we looked up the price at the time. It was like 1800 a month there. So it was like, wow, we're getting like this killer deal. And, and it was just awesome. You know, my, it was, it was hard on my family. They, I, I, my mom did fly out and see me once during the year and we spent some time traveling, but it was a game changer. It was like, this is amazing getting to travel and learning about other types of music. What do you mean? How, how long were you there for? A year? It was just, it was just a year. Just maybe a little bit more about your experience there. What was the big difference that you saw there? The way they teach music or they, the way actually they just teach period to compared to the way things were being taught here or in Idaho more specifically. Did you see any contrast between there or similarities between there? Well, it was a lot more relaxed in general. I remember they take a fika, which is, I think it's F-I-K-A. If I'm, we can look that up later. And it's a, it's a coffee break and they would do it twice a day. And it would be like the whole school takes the break and it's about 15, 20 minutes. And and I just, I, I remember that being one of the first wildest things. I'm like, wait, my, I, you know, I get my syllabus or my schedule and I'm organizing the day and I'm like, what's this break from 1015 to 1045? And it's like, oh, it's, it's the coffee break. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well I'll, I'll go to the cafeteria and everybody's in there, professors, students, and they're all drinking real Swedish, Sweden has great coffee and they're just enjoying like maybe a pastry with it. And they're talking about things they're working on. It's very social. And, and I'm like, this is awesome because in the United States, in fact, I remember that's like when Starbucks was kind of expanding and oh, get your coffee to go. It's nice coffee, but it's going to be in a to-go cup and you take your fancy latte and take it to class and drink it in class. Well, you're not really savoring it as much. And so that was one of the, the biggest differences right away. And then as far as the teaching styles, it was a little more lax on that as well. A professor would be, hey, I'm going to be on tour for a couple of weeks, and, but we're going to come back and we'll make up a lesson or two. And, and they would, it would cram two or three lessons to make up for those, the time they were away. And, and I just remember my school in Idaho and, and generally other jobs, they just don't, people don't take as much time or, and have that liberty and freedom to do, pursue their own art. I know there's other it depends on the school, I, I should say. I mean, I know that USC has some awesome jazz professors and stuff, and they go, they have arrangements to do their own thing. But I just, man, this is like a, you know, have your cake and eat it too kind of situation for these professors. And, and I thought that was cool. I've heard this assumption a lot that in your, well, here we, we live to work, but over there people work to live. Yeah. They really like they enjoy, we really enjoy life there. I think more so than we we do here. They they savor the moment more so, and they they, they take breaks like you said the, the coffee breaks. They when when breaks come up, you take your break and you enjoy it, and you don't worry about work because it's going to be there after your break. Right. So would that be a safe assumption? Would you based on what you're saying? That's that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah, it's definitely a, it's appreciated. So you, you, you did mention it was a big game changer. If you could nail down one or two things, what was the game changer when you came out from that program in Sweden? What changed you? I think it was that it's okay to pursue writing music as a career. And it gave me a lot of confidence to get better as a performer and a writer. I remember recording a few original things. They had a they had a recording studio program, which was awesome. So I, I I would I still have the cassette tapes in the garage. And and just like, oh, we're gonna mix your song now. And do you want more reverb? Do you want more like this with the vocals? And I'm just going, wait, I'm not, you know, I'm not paying you guys to this. No, it's part of the class. We want we want to make it sound really good. And I'm bringing it to my composition teacher and they're just saying, yeah, this is cool. You could go to the chorus here and do this and that. And it was just this collaborating with original ideas. And in Sweden, they're very forward thinking with, with like jazz, especially. They'll experiment with weird saxophone pedals, like electronics with their acoustic instruments. So, which would, would also blend into experimental classical writing. And this is like, whoa, this is bizarre sounding, but super intriguing. And I just felt a lot of freedom there. And it's okay to pursue that. Now, I, I think it was just being, and it's being out of the States and being in a different country made my head kind of change its perspective to this is, you know, these, you can ride your bike to class. You can, you can take the, the coffee breaks. You can, and you can enjoy being a musician. And in Europe in general, they, they kind of support musicians more. There's more government support for concerts and grants and things like that. And I, I wanted to move back after I, after about a year, I was like, I'm ready to live here. So that would be the next things I'm leading up to. So that, that was, a, you said that was in your third year. It, it, am I right about that? Yeah. So when you came back to Idaho for fourth year, was there an adjustment period for you? There was, it was, I think it's an interesting time because it actually took me five years total to get the, the undergrad. So that, that year in Sweden was kind of a transitional year for me. And I just remember not taking things as seriously as far as like career. And it's like, it's like, you know, what do you do? I remember there was a professor here at UNLV when I was getting my master's and he just, he goes, Tyler, okay, you got your master's degree in composition. Now the gigs are going to really start coming. Right. And it's like, cause you got to establish yourself as a person of composition or performance and and that came much later. So the, it's interesting. Those two years after Sweden was just kind of like this, like, okay, I'm going to finish my degree. And I did, I did okay. I had a, I had a nice composition recital my senior year and thought I could still maybe teach part-time and, and write some music and play in bands, which I did. I was kind of just all over the map. I, lo I love rock and roll. I love jazz. I love classical and which, which is good for getting gigs, but it's hard to get a, a nice identity with what you do as a writer. So you're coming out of university, you're, you're still, you've got a wide spectrum of interest as far as your music is concerned. And as far as teaching is concerned, you're still dabbling with that. So what happened after university? I mean, you did mention that you want to go back to Sweden. Did you, did you consider that at all or what, what transpired after university? Yeah, that's a good question. I did want to go back to Sweden. I miss it. I miss the coffee. And we ended up moving to 
a small town up in up in Oregon, Rainier, Oregon, which is right across the river from Longview, Washington. It's a beautiful area. And my ex got a, a good teaching job there. And I didn't have a full-time job. I, I think I was working at a music store part-time. And then I was assistant coach of the school swim team. And, uh, and then playing a few gigs here and there, playing some jazz gigs in Longview. And just kind of, you know, floating around, not really. I was going to Portland, Oregon a lot for, for jazz, which is a great city for, for music all sorts of kinds of music. And then my ex and I decided, well, we should maybe look at graduate school. And then we, so we applied for a, a few different colleges and then UNLV turned out to be a pretty good deal for both of us. Uh, What's the we, school called again? Uh, UNLV, University of Nevada, Las Vegas. University of, and that's, that's why you ended up moving to Las Vegas. Exactly. Okay. So your master's program now. So let's just get into that a little bit more. What was the master's program about? Okay, so I decided to pursue more music composition, and I got offered an assistantship to be the university librarian and for the orchestra. So, and I was also playing in the orchestra, upright bass. And I remember after the first year, I'm like, hmm, it'd be nice to do something different. I asked the the dean of the college and had a couple meetings and. They said, well, we have this history of rock and roll class you could teach. I'm like, that's cool. I like rock and roll and I like, I like education. So kind of coming full circle back to how I started in the school systems and, and, and that was fun. And it was like pretty big class. I think there was about a hundred students in one of my classes and it was, that was a lot of fun teaching that second year of my master's program. I taught two semesters. And so that, that helped pay for my school teaching the classes. You talked a little bit about teaching. Did you write your own curriculum, by the way, too? Yeah, I did. Actually, there was a, there was a book we all kind of used that was the, the same text, but we, we could write our own curriculum. And it was, it was so fun because I could, I could spend a little more time on, on some of the genres that I was interested in, like, like prog rock or things that would relate to classical and jazz. And you have to teach about certain things like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and our early blues and all that stuff. And actually even just kind of nerding out with the students about some of the, the techniques the bands would use, such as with tape versus going digital. Yeah, it was fun. In addition to that, your master's program, you're learning a lot more about music composition. So what's transforming there? What are you learning about? So yeah, when you get into the master's program, at least the one here, it was pretty intense where you would have to really study specific styles for a whole semester, like post-romantic composition or atonal music. Atonal like music is just music that's not really in a key per se. And there's the serial composition, which is using every note in a certain order, the 12-tone technique. And so it's all this like, super nerdy music that's, we all loved it, the composers loved it, but it's, it's not real, that kind of music is not very marketable in general. You're not going to get a, a gig writing for a movie or something if it's like, you know, all these notes going all over the place, like, like John Cage or something. But it's it's important to study and and see where things where they see where things came from and where they are going in the in the overall arc of music composition. 
the one thing that's coming to my mind when you're describing this, and I think the I think anybody who's listening to this show would really appreciate that, especially somebody who's considering taking music. For yourself, what was the biggest thing you got out of those kind of classes? Well, I think what I got out of them the most was just the collaborating with other students and and just knowing we're all in it together here. We're learning this stuff together, and it's learning how to steal from the best, I guess, is one of the that I've heard before, is steal your art from other artists. And it's okay to to borrow things. But I remember as a writer, sometimes I'd write something, I'm like, oh shit, that sounds like Shostakovich. And and I would, and it sure enough, it would be, it'd be like a clip of a melody or, or the viola part from a string quartet. And I'm like, and I didn't even mean to do it. I was just, it was just in my head from all the analysis. And so I remember being, enjoying the study, but then also feeling like, I don't even know I am. Like, I, do I have to be like Shostakovich? Do I have to be like John Cage? So it took me a few years, even after getting the master's to say, it's okay to, to still enjoy, like you said, Metallica or some of the, the rock that we grew up with. I remember even, even playing in a rock band on the weekends and my, one of my theory teachers like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you playing on a, in a rock band? You've got all this work to do, blah, blah. I'm like, well, I like playing rock and roll. It's fun. And it's paying the bills too. It's, it was pretty good money at the time. And so I guess it's a, it's a long answer to like enjoying it on one hand, but also going, I can't just become the next composer I'm studying here. I've got to find my own way with this somehow. So when you did graduate with your master's, what did you do then? Really? I mean, you're obviously trying to find more of more of your style. How, how did you do that? So that or was, what did you do? Or, or sorry, what did you do after your master's? Let's just get more into more of the specifics. Yeah. So after my master's, it was spring of 2001. So I got, a, I think it was like the summer. I just did some odd jobs. There's a few gigs on the weekends, but then like, what do we do during the day? You could teach a few privates, but schools are out for the summer. So I'm like kind of applying for some school teaching jobs. I'm, all, I'm looking for gigs and I'm working on my writing as, as well. But then this, this pedicab job comes up at the mall where you're riding a bike that's carrying people like a rickshaw, I guess is another word for it. It was one of my first like professional jobs after getting a master's in music composition. How did that feel? Was that inflating or deflating or well, did you just laugh at yourself? I got in good shape and I laughed at myself a lot. But I will tell you this, I'll, I'll name drop a little bit here. Ronnie Venucci, the drummer from The Killers, was one of our partners in that that circle of bikers. And sometimes you get like a, a high roller that was shopping in the mall and they're like, they'd give you like a $100 chip or $100 bill if you gave them an, a ride and they, they were having a good day in the casino. But then you would also get some like family of four cramming onto the bike. And then they'd give you like five bucks after 20 minutes of, of paddling because we, we didn't have a set fee. There was like a legal issue with it where you could only accept tips and you had to make that really clear before they got on the bike. So it, they could stiff you and not even pay you. And you'd just be like, you couldn't do anything about it. So yeah, I learned, I learned a lot about humanity that summer. So, okay. So after that little stint of getting in shape and biking people around, what did you do afterwards? So I got lucky. I made some connections with different musicians. And I, I remember becoming friends with D Goss, the clarinetist at CSN and Dr. D. She's, she's awesome. 
awesome theory teacher. She's like, you know, I'm going to be on a sabbatical this fall. Would you be interested in teaching theory at the, at the community college? I'm like, heck yeah. <laughs> so, so that worked out great. And I, I ended up picking up a couple classes there and continued to gig and play on the weekends. So I was starting to make a little, little money and, and feeling good to be teaching in a college right after a master's degree. And it's, it's funny, Mickey, because like now I'm feeling 20 years later, exactly 20 years later, almost in the same boat, boat with COVID and just starting over. And like, literally, I'm actually, I just texted the new head of CSN, this college I'm talking about. Just last week, I said, hey, can I, can I reach out to you about a potential job or, or as a referral? He's like, of course, Tyler, no problem. You know, we, it's, it's like 20 years later, I'm starting over, it feels like, in some ways. But so that turned out great. And then I ended up picking up a couple more, more regular kind of jobs and getting a few writing gigs. And I ended up with a, a high school position a few years later. I think it was 2003. That was when I got a part, actually a three quarter time job at Bishop Gorman High School, which is a Catholic private school. And during that year, I was still playing gigs on the weekends. But having to get up at like 6 a.m. for class and I'd be so some nights like a Thursday, if I had a gig on a Thursday night, I'd be up till like 2 a.m. And then I'd have to be at the school the next morning at 630 for like a mass. And then then the band class I was running and that was not working out for my my head too much. It was a good gig, but then I ended up getting a, a tour gig after that. That would be touring parts of the states. Would that be what, what that would be, entail? I got asked by a contractor to go on tour with Fiddler on the Roof. And I'm like, okay, that's, yeah, that's a big musical. And it was, it was called a bus and truck tour, which is basically you're, you're traveling by bus and, and the truck is carrying all the, the gear. And it's, it was a bunch of smaller towns throughout America. And I did that for, I want to say about a half a year, but it changed my life. I was like, this is awesome. Like I'm playing my upright bass professionally. I'm not teaching right now. I'm just I'm just a professional musician full time for the first time. So you said you really liked that. So what did you like so much about it? It's just the fact that you weren't teaching and you were just actually just playing music. Is that what you liked about it so much? I did. Yeah, because because as a teacher, I wasn't into it all all the way. It was a great school, great kids, but this it was an older school. The locker room area where they store the instruments needed repairs. We needed to order new gear, all these things. I walked into that mess and kind of just like, you know, my heart wasn't into it all the way. I, I, I knew I could do it if I really wanted to, but then I was, I was getting more gigs. And so I was being pulled in two directions at the same time. Like I could teach more stability. I mean, that gig even had benefits, even though I was three quarter time. But then when the gigs started coming in more with this tour I mentioned, I just felt like this is my calling. You know, I, I just want to do this. And I hadn't looked back. The one thing that pops in my mind then too, when you're on tour and I don't know how many people you're on tour with, like how big would an orchestra like that be? I want to say it was around seven or eight of us. Okay. I would take it. And I'm just thinking out loud, you have to get along with everybody. Yes. So then I'm going to hit on something a little bit more personal about your personality. I take it that you're, you sound like a pretty laid back person and you get along with people fairly well. Would that be pretty accurate? 
I think so. Yeah, I try to, I try to get along with people the best I can and I think it's a bass player thing too. You got to support the band. <laughs> so, as far as your personality was concerned, is that a main attribute for a, a musician, especially in your in your genre? Yes, for sure. The great band, the Eagles, they can't even get along even though they're getting paid millions of dollars. It's it's like what is the deal, you know? It's like you're on stage for 2 hours and you can stay in any hotel you want and but it's funny when you said about like getting along with the band. I was thinking about it cuz we had to share rooms. It was a it's called a pamphlet B tour. It was a union gig. And I was with the the trumpet player, John, and he's a super nice guy and great great musician. And I just remember every day and I I hope he hears this. I don't know. I'll have to send this to him, but he would watch Law and Order every day in the in the hotel room. I'm like you're watching Law and Order again? Like I'm just I go read my book or something. You get used to these little quirks on on tour where people are kind of doing the same things and but it was a good group of people. I was really fortunate. It's not the elaborate lo- lifestyle that I think a lot of people would think it is. Is that true? But at the same time, are you a starving artist? Is is there a line between the between the two? Yeah, that's a good question. On that tour, I didn't have a lot of expenses. I did not own a home. I so I didn't have to pay the rent or anything like that. So even though I it didn't pay a lot, I it, I was able to save and pay for some some of my loans or like I had a few student loans and things like that. But that's the big question, is it feast or famine with the music industry? And of course it is. Yeah. I've had some really great years and I've had some lean years. Of course this last year was total wash, but because I've had good years before that, I, I planned ahead and I've been pretty fortunate. But yeah, it's it's funny. Just, I mean, I think I was even making more before that tour, the Fiddler on the Roof tour, and it was still. But I was just so happy to be touring that it didn't really matter. It's interesting to think about that. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Just how how it's not always about the money. No, it's not. It's not about the money. But it's just something. I'm, I'm again. I'm just throwing things out there. So so. Anybody who is listening and is thinking about a career in music, they, they have an idea of what, what they may be up against or how it actually all works. You keep on bringing up union. So I interviewed somebody about a month ago that was working in the film industry, and that's in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and they were part of a union. So obviously the musicians in North America, I think, are pretty much unionized. Would you want to elaborate on that? Yes, a lot of us are. It's it's gone through many ups and downs, especially even in Las Vegas, because a lot of casinos don't go with union type contracts. And I know that my last job at the Win, he we we were not a union show, but you could be in the union to be there. You just had to pay your dues on that. But the Win had their own benefits for being there. A few of us on that gig didn't stay in the union. So actually, I actually got out myself back then, but I'm thinking about getting back in. So how, somebody at your caliber, how do, how do you find gigs or how do you find other musicians to play with? Like, how does it, how does this all work? Does, is there just a network that you have and then you just sort of just randomly connect people or people connect with you? How, how does it actually all work? Not to sound cliche, but it's, it really is who you know. And in those relationships, it's keeping relationships cl- to people you trust and that can trust you and referrals, word of mouth, all of that means so much more than I realized. Actually, I remember taking this workshop last summer and 
there was a professor, a music professor talking about how you, we have these circles. We all have different circles and you can make a circle of your education or my university experiences and those kind of people. And you have like work experiences. Well, here's the jazz circle. Here's the classical circle. Here's the rock and roll circle and how they just kind of all connect. And some people overlap. And I, I started to make, make a list of, you know, about 15 people that I can call. And I'm just grateful that they, they pick up. And like my drummer friend this morning who sent me the, the thing yesterday, you know, we've played a lot of really awesome gigs together over the years. And, and it's just really cool to have that um, connection with people. But it's funny because I'm, I'm, I'm on like LinkedIn and I'm reaching out to some other people too. It's, it's part of unemployment to be completely honest with you. But yeah, it's like, it's putting yourself out there. It's, you know, little social media connecting in other ways. I find that the podcasting is helping me connect to some friends and and that's been a fun journey a lot of work too but as you know oh i know yeah before i get into the podcasting and your website and your blogging i just want to talk about this for a minute too because uh, we haven't really given the listeners a lot of insight on this as far as your compositions are concerned and composing how does that work if you could give a bit more insight on that yeah it's it's funny i've got a couple of potential clients that want music for their podcast right now. And that's been kind of cool. Just networking through the um, different circles with that. I've got a couple of albums I've, I've done and, and I've played on others records before and arranging for different things. But the composition lately has been pretty dry as far as like getting it out there. I want to get more into submitting for film or different clients that, that would want to use it for different purposes. I've mainly, the last two, three, four years, I've, I've mainly done like jazz or pop music and not for like profit per se. I mean, it's really hard to sell music these days, like especially recorded music. It's all on streaming services like Spotify and stuff like that. So it's, it's really hard to just be motivated to okay, I'm going to drop five grand on this recording and, and nothing will happen. But there is a need out there for the orchestras and chamber groups and jazz groups that are going to be coming back. They're going to be looking for music. And so that's been kind of on my mind lately is just getting a fresh start to it and putting it out there. Just understanding how your day works. Do you write every day or do you try to write every day? Recently, I have been doing a lot more even if it's just tooling around, like I said, I was saying earlier with like my friend's drum groove, he sent me and just, just trying to get a few ideas down on paper or recording. But it, one of those things, if I, if I switch something in my head, like, okay, this is fun. This is what your, your degree is in and you enjoy writing music. And if I say this little, these few words right before I sit down, it's really easy. But if I kind of go, Oh crap, I got to study all these. I've got a whole shelf of scores behind me here all the, the big bozers and stuff. And, and I'll, I'll think I'll either think I, I can write my fun stuff and just play around with it, or I can get deep into the chamber and orchestra music, which I still love doing that work and that study and composition, but I haven't done it as much lately. So lately my day consists of do a little bit of practicing, do a little bit of writing or blogging and just getting my ideas down on paper and, and different directions. I can go. When do your best ideas come to you? When do you, when do you think when you're more relaxed and just, just having fun with it or when you really take it seriously? I think it's when I'm more relaxed. 
and if somebody gives me a little nugget to work with, whether it's a few lyrics or or something, I can run with it. And and uh, but it just depends on the style of music. If it's if it's a song like a pop song or or a jazz kind of song, it's a little easier to just play around. Whereas if it's a classical piece somebody wants for a, like a short film, I have to time everything perfectly, study the the ups and downs in the film. This is this intrigues me because I think a lot of people have a misconception, and you you indicated this when you went to Sweden, and that was this is just when you're writing music, people do tend to take off what other people have done, and just sort of just take that and and spin it and just build on it from there. So, is that true, or do you basically sit down and just look at a blank? piece of paper or just an empty head and go, okay, well, let's just do something. So which, which way do you sort of do it? Or which way do you think most people do it? Mm, that's a good question. I remember having a great composition teacher at the University of Idaho who, Dick Al, great French horn player too. And he just said, just schedule it every day. Just schedule the time and do something, whether it's editing, coming up with ideas, sketching on a blank piece of paper, anything. And I remember that. And he, he was very good about that and just carve out the time and do it. But for me, I need like a little bit of a, yeah, you know, it's a gig or it's paying. It's like a Porter, the great composer used to say what, you know, he was asked, you know, what, what inspires you? He goes, Oh, a call from a producer. I, I wrote this melody a couple of weeks ago for a podcast possibly. And it's called love me anyway. Okay. And she's, we had a phone call and she's like, I like, I love, you know, Nita Baker. I love all these R and B kind of vibe jazz. And she listed like three or four different groups she likes. And she has a great podcast about unconditional love. And it's, it's, you know, it's very awesome message that she has, you know, very positive. And, and she's like, I want lyrics in my podcast theme. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. So what kind of lyrics? Well, the title of the podcast, Love Me Anyway. I'm like, okay. So I started playing with this waltz and and it's cool. Like I was like, okay, so I wrote some lyrics and and put it to a melody and, and I've been playing around with it. And I played it for my my friend, my singer friend yesterday. She's like, oh yeah, I can hear that. That would work. And I like your transition there and this and that. And I'm like, cool. You finish the lyrics for me? You know, because I was, I was kind of, I'm kind of hung up on the that part. But it's just having like a reason to do it, I think is what inspires me. It's really hard when it's like I was saying earlier, just when it's my own thing, I've, you know, I'm just going to spend a bunch of money and, and throw it to the wind and hope, hopefully something will happen. That's important too. do art for art's sake. But the older I get, the harder it is for me to just spend money and, and record without having some sort of return. So it's, it's been a struggle to be honest, like, the, to be consistent with my writing, it's I need. Uh, I've got like three projects I could easily jump into and do. Like I've got like all these songs. Some have been recorded, some have been arranged, some have been performed even, and I haven't released them as a proper album. But it's hard to get that. Okay, here's my new record. Are you guys excited? And they're like, great. I'll stream it on Spotify and not pay you anything. And <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be tough. So you're you're one of these types of people that sort of needs a bit of pressure. Yeah, yeah. You need that fire under under your butt. You you need somebody calling you saying, "Well, you know what? Can you just do this for me?" and and then you'll produce. 
Yes. But at the same time, you do have that artistic ability and you do have that discipline. You have learned that through your schooling that you need, you need to experiment because you do strike me as one of those types that, that does like to experiment quite a bit. Yes, I do. Yeah, I think if anything, this, this podcasting workshop where we met, it's pushed me to have fun again. It's okay to be creative and have fun with your creativity. Well, let's talk more about the podcasting. So, so people that are listening, that's how I met Tyler. And we took a podcasting workshop. And that's why you're listening to this podcast, because that's why I'm doing a podcast as well. So talk about more about your podcast. What, what do you, what's the premise behind it? Well, it's, it's called Hear Me Pod, and it's about music, the tools we use, and intentionality. And I just published episode one last week, actually. I listened to part of it. Thanks. Cool. And, and I've got a bunch of interviews coming with different musicians to kind of start the, the bulk of the, the show. And it's, it's, it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm going to have some episodes with my former band, Larev. That was the last long-term gig I just finished last year. And I remember there was a point where your listeners might not know this, but there's a 60 seconds practice and you've been so good at this mickey where you i mean it's like they're mantras they're so good and they're little nuggets of things you can take away and i remember just there was a day i came back from a mixing session and i was mixing one of my pop tunes which i could release anytime and my friend angela was working on one of her tunes and she's like tyler you want to stick around and listen to the mix but she she wrote this hilarious song about farting and it, it's musical theater based and it's done in a way the timing of the, f- the fart is really funny and she gets really serious in the studio about it and she and the engineer is great he's a whole sample library of, of these fart sounds and and i thought you know i thought everybody's gonna start cracking up but he was very serious and he's like no listen to the attack on this and the decay of the at the end of it, is this too long or too short? Because we can we can change it. We can we can we can raise the octave, lower the octave. And I'm just like I'm looking around and I'm I'm cracking up and laughing. And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, these guys are serious and they're really enjoying finding these samples. And it's okay to have both at the same time. And and I remember doing like a couple of those sixty seconds, like two or three days in a row, and just being adding some sound effects to my own. 60 seconds, whether I'm talking about eating a, a burrito or something, just having fun with the day. And it was like this weight was lifted, just like trying to have the perfect podcast or fit, you know, the perfect editing for that 60 second practice. And, and I loved it. It was like a, it was like a breakthrough with a lot of things and everybody's like, you know, great. Yeah. You sound good. And you had fun and, you know, move on. It was very liberating. So that's one big thing that you like about this podcast here. That's the way I'm reading it is you're just having fun with it. I am. And it's better. The quality is better. The, the interviews are better. And when you're having fun with it, it helps you out with other things, with your composing. And one day you will be jamming with other people. You will be touring so that it'll help you out with all that. So it's, it's just a good collaboration. So then with so then with your blogging, I mean, that came first when you looked at your website and you obviously were blogging way before you were podcasting. Would that be right? Yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about your blogging. Sure. So I was a fan of Seth Godin and I watched him, I think on an interview or something. And he talked about his, his own blogging. He's been blogging for years. He's, I think he's got over 7,000 now or something, but he wrote about 
either spoke about it or wrote about it. I can't remember, but he, he said, Hey, you know, try blogging every day for, for a hundred days and see how you feel. And I, I think at the time I was just like, okay, I'm not doing much. I'm, it's COVID and stuck at home. And, and I just, I just dug into it and did it every day, no matter what. I think there was one or two days. I just forgot to publish the night before it was a late night thing. And then I, so I just kind of post-dated it, but it was such a good practice and you, you never knew who was going to read it. But that was, that was the first hundred days of that was just, just having a routine and a practice with it. Some of the blogs I, I really enjoyed was talking about music or things I was listening to that week or, you know, when Chick Corea passed away earlier this year, I wrote about that and drummer Vini Caliuta wrote a, actually did a podcast about Chick Korea, the great pianist. And, and I thought it was awesome. So I blogged about his podcast, which is, it's just kind of funny. Cause you, you I'm like, is this even original? If I'm talking about a drummer talking about a piano player and I'm like, yeah, I guess it doesn't really matter. And there's just some freedom with, with blogging that I really like as well. And it gets you out there and keeps you accountable. You got to kind of be careful what you post. You don't want to talk about a, a crappy producer or director or something like that. But you getting your creative side going for sure. I think what Seth says as well is it's just getting your ideas out there and it's getting more of your right hand brain going or brain part of your going in by practicing it every day. I think it's just going back to what your, your one professor said It's just, you gotta, you gotta practice something every day. So yeah. I think that's, that's, that's the key thing. Just, I'm just watching the time. So anybody listening out there that it's considering music as a career, any tidbits of information or suggestions that you would want to pass on to anybody? We need good music. We need good musicians. We need, we need to keep the live music alive. It really is important. I watched a really awesome bass workshop or symposium, whatever you want to call it with a bunch of Cirque du Soleil bass players, some good friends of mine, and then a couple of stars, Victor Wooten, Steve Bailey, Steve Bailey from Berkeley School of Music actually hosted it. And then a lot of bass players were watching it and chatting. And Victor Wooten said the coolest thing. It was like, keep playing music. People love musicians. And I had this moment of like self-love, I guess. And just like thinking, because my brain's been all over the map this last year, as many artists have been, where you're just like, should I open a coffee house? Should I work at a bank? I don't know what to do here. And hearing that sort of like, no, it's okay. If, you, if, you're, if your heart's into doing this sort of thing, just stick with it because people will, they'll read it from you. They'll, they'll know if you're into it or not. And so I would just say to musicians out there that really search your soul and, and don't think about the money. Don't think about the fame as I did when I was really young. Think about your heart and what you want to what, what it does when you play for someone and how they react to the live music. Well, those are good words of wisdom. I, I really appreciate those. I'm just going to wrap up this interview. I appreciate your time. Yeah, Mickey, no problem. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Okay. And uh, I guess we'll just talk to you soon. All right, man. Have a good day. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> okay. See ya. Bye. I would personally like to thank Tyler for that open and candid interview. Just to recap, he described how he developed his interest in music at such an early age and how this grew as he matured. 
Going into university, he had two key interests, education and music. But how this really changed when he did an internship in Sweden, and it became very clear to him that music was his real passion. We all have these aha moments, but in his case, he really followed through, something we should all remember. He reflects on his journey and how he decided to do a master's degree in music composition and what that was like. This ultimately led him to Las Vegas, Nevada, where he currently resides, and he really likes it there. He describes the ins and outs of being a musician, how it can be feast or famine. More importantly, though, he describes what it's like to be on the road with other musicians, how he networks with other musicians within his own community. Surprisingly, he uses LinkedIn and Facebook like all of us. One big takeaway for me personally was when he talks about his podcast, Hear Me Pod. He talks about how he experiments with this and how he has fun with this and how, more importantly, this has helped him in his creative process regarding his own music. On a final note, I would like to mention his encouraging words that musicians will always be needed as we all like to listen to music. The key thing is not to get wrapped up with the fame and the money. I think that's a key takeaway for all of us, not to worry about the money so much, but to follow our hearts. I would like to ask everybody to tune next, tune in next week to the Career Guy podcast, where I will be interviewing Lou Rosenfeld, owner of Lou's Performance Center in Calgary. Lou has had quite the journey, from being in the U.S. military during the height of the Vietnam War, He went to university, became a mechanical engineer, and worked at Fuji Imaging. He saw the transition from film to digital. From there, he went on and did a master's degree in engineering, researching foot orthotics, which led him to his passion, designing and custom-fitting ski boots, which he does at Lou's Performance Center. So please stay tuned in next week.